Hello, and welcome again to Exploring Mental Illness, Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Afraid to Ask. I'm Derek Mulhan. I'm here with Carrie Ballou. Carrie, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Derek. How are you today? Uh, you know, a little off. Um, functionally depressed, let's put it that way. Ups and downs, but uh, you know, it's how you, uh, it's how you come back from that stuff. So I gave myself a, a, a day, but you can't let yourself get you know, more than one day because a day turns into two, turns into a week and turns into a month. So um, I gave myself a day yesterday and, you know, now I'm here and, you know, today's a new day. And yeah, I just want to let people know that um, I feel a little lost right now, but that's okay. And that's a natural feeling. You're not going crazy when you feel lost. It's just, you know, mental illness, you know, you can control it, but there are mitigating factors that happen and you've got to focus in on all your training I didn't want to let it get out of hand, so I made a, a, you know, I'm seeing my psychologist tomorrow. So I'm trying to be very proactive at this point because I don't want to let it get any worse, which I, I doubt it will. But, you know, you just, you go with it and, um, you know, I'm here, which is good. Didn't cancel. So uh, that's a positive thing for the day. So why don't you introduce our, uh, our guest that you have brought in uh, today? Thank you. So with us today, we have Dr. Scott Haltzman. Dr. Haltzman is the medical director at Arbor Fuller Hospital. Dr. Haltzman, did you want to... Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background with uh, mental health. Well, it's a pleasure to be on the show and, and to get a chance to meet Derek and to talk to the audience. I've been a psychiatrist for about 30 years. I, I keep losing count because every year it goes up a year. And uh, as came, came to Brown University as an undergraduate, then did medical school here, then went on to Yale University to complete my psychiatry residency program and have been residing more or less in the uh, Rhode Island uh, or, or southeastern Massachusetts area or working in those areas. So it's nice to be here talking to the audiences. And, and I, I'm struck with Derek's observations about uh, both where he kind of is taking his own pulse, as it were, or own, own barometer, kind of saying to himself, but I'm going to get up today and, and, and do this, whether you want to call it a task or a source of pleasure. But my thoughts were that probably even by the end of just spending however amount of time you do the podcast for, just by nature of doing it, engaging it, participating, hearing yourself, hearing us, I'm going to guess that you will feel better because it's going to give you a sense of purpose and and give you a sense that you continue to move forward instead of waking up in the morning thinking of yourself as just sliding back. So uh, I'm glad to be on the show, and I'm certainly glad that you got out of bed and are making this happen because it's making it happen for everyone here. That was one of the things that was important to me that your psychiatrist and your psychologist, like I have both on outpatient at Butler Hospital, they monitor my meds and then I have my psychologist. The thing is, and and we had touched upon this last show, your your doctors don't want to see you just when you're good. They need to see you when you're bad too. As much as I felt bad today, I felt the need to tell people that, you know, hey, I'm not doing too good today, but I can still function. I can still get out there. And this means a lot to me. So people know, listen, it's okay to feel bad. It's just how long you let yourself feel bad, which is when you get into trouble. So just by getting up today, knowing that I had to do this and getting out, you know, as I was driving over here, I felt already better because I was out, the sun was out, had the window cracked open, the, you know, the cool air. So, and this is important to me because I hopefully, you know, people can hear this and, and, and learn a little bit from it. So I agree that, you know, sometimes I will have patients that will say, well, doc, I didn't want to, I didn't want to tell you I was feeling bad. I, I didn't want you to feel like you weren't doing a good job as a doctor. I'm like, dude, it's not about, it's not about me and my feelings. It's about what you're experiencing. So uh, I support that. When it's time to see your doctor, you, you, you want to 
lay out where you are. And, and it doesn't mean, by the way, that every time, now you, you talked about your psychologist, that of course, as a psychiatrist, I'm also able to use medications. And I think sometimes people are afraid, well, if I tell my psychiatrist I'm having a bad day, he's going to change all my meds or he's going to go up on my meds. And when I tell people, and, and by the way, some psychiatrists do, but what I tell people is, look, you're entitled to have a bad day, uh, even a bad week. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to change medications. Uh, we need to take a look at what's going on, what the stresses are, and then maybe uh, maybe medication changes need to be thought of, but there may be other ways of approaching it that don't include medications. Yeah, my psychiatrist at, uh, at Butler, um, they say the exact same thing. You know, they'll, they'll look at my file and they will make a good judgment. You know what? You're having a bad week. There's no reason to change the meds. If there was some adverse psychological differences oh. that they would notice in me, mm -hmm. I've been at Butler for uh, 20 years and I've been with my psychologist for 25 years. So, and they share information, which is the best thing. So if, if they're thinking about a med change, I'll tell them, you know, can you call my, my doctor and at least talk things over? And then they come to a great conclusion and they realize, you know, listen, you just got to get out. If you're functionally depressed, that's better than just being depressed and staying in. So I'm glad that you're one of those doctors who realizes also that just because you have a bad day doesn't mean that, oh my God, we got to, you know, up his meds. So our topic today is actually clinical depression, and uh, which is one of the reasons we wanted to bring Dr. Haltzman on to discuss further what exactly is the definition of clinical depression. Well, you know, within psychiatry, we, we don't have the luxury of somebody coming to me as a doctor and I say, well, let me just send you for blood work. Let me just send you for an x-ray. We'll figure out what your diagnosis is. So diagnosis of psychiatry is often based on somebody's clinical presentation, how they appear when they see the doctor, and the information that they give that doctor about the experiences they're having. Uh, and it's somewhat arbitrary, but we've kind of, as a group of researchers and clinicians, the field of psychiatry has determined that what, what you're calling a clinical depression, what we would call in psychiatry a major depression, would be when you're having symptoms of feeling depressed or down uh, basically every day or almost every day for at least two weeks. If, uh, let's say, you're a, uh, a fan of the Tennessee Titans and they lose against the Patriots, uh, you might feel down for a day or two, uh, but that wouldn't be a clinical depression. Uh, if, however, when you feel down or low and it just doesn't get better for over two weeks and there are other symptoms that go along with it, then we start to think that this might be the, the diagnosis of a major depressive disorder. And those would be things like not having the amount of energy that you might normally have or not being interested in things that you would ordinarily be interested in. It's often associated with changes in your appetite or not being able to sleep at night or even sleeping too much. So a, a, a cluster of these symptoms at the same time uh, may be affecting your uh, concentration or it may be making you feel agitated or lethargic. When these are all happening at the same time, we start to think maybe this is a major depressive disorder. And, and incidentally, if you're also drinking alcohol heavily or doing opiates or doing other drugs, uh, then it makes it much more difficult to make that diagnosis. We would typically want to see somebody clean uh, and sober from all substances before we can kind of jump in and say, this is your this is your diagnosis. So we put all that information together, and then uh, from there we'll move forward in terms of trying to find some treatment if we believe it is 
a major depressive disorder. So Dr. Holtzman, outside of the major depressive disorder, what are, are some of the other possible categories or types of depression that people may experience? One of the things that we just, I just mentioned is some people can have depressive-like symptoms on the basis of substance abuse. In that case, it might be a substance-induced mood disorder. Um, some people can have some symptoms of depression, but still be able to function okay, go to work, uh, be able to concentrate, enjoy being around their nieces and nephews, and they might have what's called an adjustment disorder with depressed features. That, would, that will happen to everybody that roots for the Eagles uh, when they play against the Patriots. <laughs> you know, afterwards, they may have an adjustment disorder and, and, and deal with feeling depressed as a result of it. But I think the, uh, the, the one that, I, that has been getting a lot of uh, press and publicity within the past decade has been the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And bipolar disorder is when people will have symptoms of major depression uh, and often meet the criteria of major depression, but at other points in their life have really basically the opposite of a depressed episode, where rather than just feel normal and, and happy and content, uh, they feel super happy, supercharged, energetic, like they're on top of the world, to the point where their, their thoughts are racing. People can't understand uh, somebody with a bipolar disorder because he or she is talking too fast. Uh, that person with bipolar won't even need sleep at night. There's just so much that he or she wants to get done. They'll take on extra work. Uh, they'll work double shifts, triple shifts. They'll start new businesses, spend a lot of money on credit cards, uh, really lose their judgment to the point where they'll often end up either being hospitalized or arrested or broke uh, or, you know, all three. So some of the symptoms that you're mentioning in terms of bipolar and of both depression and what a manic episode would look like, those are some symptoms. As you're, as you're talking about the various symptoms, I'm thinking in my head, I have my checklist. I'm like, I do that. I do that. I do that. But what would you say um, from your, your medical perspective, what's, what's the factors? Yeah, that's a good question because I think, you know, it's a, it's a typical thing. You open up a magazine and it says you have cancer and you read all the signs and it's like, you know, loose bowels. Oh my God, I get loose bowels, you know, or uh, stomach pain. Yes, I get stomach pain. But having occasional stomach pain or occasional loose bowels doesn't mean that there's a sure thing that you have cancer. And almost all of the symptoms that we have in psychiatry are symptoms that people will experience you know, intermittently from time to time, and they could be considered normal. So, of course, if you're a college student and you're, you know, you're, you're excited about something that happened and you're staying up all night doing work and you don't really feel the need to sleep, even for two or three days, that could be normal. Uh, and, and so I think the issue with this uh, when it comes to any psychiatric illness is how long these behaviors or symptoms are lasting and the impact that they have on your life. So if there are days, Carrie, where you're feeling excited and happy and you don't need to sleep as much and, and your mind is racing a little more than usual, but it doesn't interfere with your relationships, you haven't been arrested because of it. And after three or four days, you know, you start to wind down a little bit. You get a good night's sleep, you feel a little calmer, you go on a, two, you know, a weekend trip away and you're able to calm down and relax. That's different as than someone who simply can't get control of their emotions and they start to steamroll out of out of control but i do have people that will come in and say well doc you know i can fly off the handle in a second i think i have bipolar because i'm flipping from one emotion to another in just seconds and i will say yeah that's flipping 
That's definitely a change in your emotions, but that's not what bipolar disorder is. Bipolar disorder, you need to be in a particular mood, by definition, and sustain that mood for, for days, if not weeks, in a row. Um, doctor, um, when I first got diagnosed with my panic and anxiety, this was about 25 years ago, they didn't know what it was. It was very, I mean, they put me on Paxil, but it, it, it did the trick for the, for the time being. Now they've got the happy Abilify pill. Do you think at this point in time, I mean, people go to WebMD, which is probably the worst thing they can do is to go online and check out symptoms. Do you think the pharmaceutical companies right now are trying to cash in because mental illness wasn't prevalent, you know, to, to, to advertise on TV? And now every other commercial as well, social anxiety, you know, take this, take that. Um, I know ultimately it's up to the doctor to prescribe the meds. How hard is it to differentiate, like you said, the, the medicines are always on TV where it was non-existent, you know, within 10 years ago? Well, there's both sides of the coin of the issue about advertising on TV and the question about using uh, using medications for mental illness. And I do agree, uh, it seems to be the message that people may get from watching television is that something that might be a normal trait, like being shy or like not being able to pay attention to a boring teacher at school, now suddenly that shyness is considered social anxiety or that boredom is considered attention deficit disorder. So I do think people can be seduced into uh, looking at th this idea that there are pills that can solve every problem, and now we're taking certain personality traits and we're taking certain styles, and people are asking for medication for that, and I certainly have seen that, uh, particularly when it comes to ADD. You know, people will say, well, you know, Doc, I, I go to work, and, um, you know, sometimes I tune out, or sometimes I get sleepy. You know, do you think maybe I need an ADD med? Uh, and And... Typically, adults with ADD would have had ADD when they were kids, and so it's often important to go back and ask about their past history. But to get more to, to your question about things like panic, anxiety, even depression, as I said, I think it's, you can go either way. On one hand, it tells people that there is a real illness out there, because for a lot of people, their belief is that, uh, that if you have depression, if you have some other form of mental illness, it's because you don't have enough willpower or you're not praying enough. And, um, you know, hey, I'm all for willpower and I'm all for praying, but sometimes these are biological illnesses that need some form of treatment. Um, but the other side of that sword is when you start introducing agents that treat all kinds of problems, then when the psychiatrist that's treating that patient no longer says to themselves, do I need to treat with meds? They ask, which med do I use? Most psychiatrists in our community in, in the country to take a step back. And instead of assuming because somebody comes into their office with symptoms of depression, yeah, meds will help depression. But the question I would ask is, are they recommending therapy? Are they talking to them about what is going on in their lives? And maybe, uh, you know, because, you know, 40% of people that will take an antidepressant won't take it for more than three months. They'll just stop taking it. Uh, so if they work, why would people stop it? Well, maybe they didn't need it in the first place. Maybe what they really needed was to go and, and talk to somebody. I have a theory sometimes that some of my patients, just by nature of coming in and talking to me, by the time they come in for the next visit, they may feel better anyway, just because there's an experience of, of talking to somebody that, that's there to listen, that's able to 
understand your problems, uh, and that has the knowledge to help them solve it, uh, can really go a long way to making somebody feel like they're back on the track to getting better. Meds are good, but, but they're not the only answer. And that's something that I definitely want to dive in a, in, in a few minutes is, is successful treatments and, and, and treatment models that you've seen. Um, you know, I think that we encounter a lot in society this fix-it mentality where if I get on a regime and I feel better, I'm better, and it's done, and I'm cured, and so I'm going to stop my treatment because I feel better. Um, I think that when it comes to chronic illnesses, you know, we, we continue to struggle with people who feel as though once they're better, they can... The, uh, their treatments become optional or, or null and void. Would you agree with that? I think it's a risk. Most researchers believe that if you've had a first episode of depression, that you should be staying on that medication, if you needed medication to get well, uh, that you should be staying on that medication for nine months uh, to a year. Uh, and if you've been to therapy and the therapy is really helping, you don't turn around and say, okay, I'm feeling better now. Let me just stop seeing the therapist. You work with the therapist and you kind of negotiate around when would be a good time to start cutting back with treatment? How will I know when I'm feeling worse? What can I do to get better? And about 50% of people that have a depressive episode may not have a, a, another recurrent episode. However, if you're one of those people who've had a number of episodes, then with each episode you have, the chance of having a recurrence goes up. And so at a certain point, most doctors will say, it makes sense for you to, to be on antidepressant medications and stay on antidepressant medications. In that case, I agree with you. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, now I started back on it. Now I'm feeling well again. Let me stop. Uh, I think that's, unfortunately, that's, that's just not how this particular illness works. And I give the example of myself. Your listeners can't see me, but I have very light skin. So I'm very prone to sunburn. If I go out in the sun, I have to wear sunblock, and I've got to wear a hat, and I have to do that every day. So it's not like I can say to myself, okay, for the last month, I've used sunblock every day. I've worn a hat every day. I haven't got a bit of sunburn. I'm past that now. Tomorrow, I can go out without sunblock and a hat. No. My susceptibility to getting sunburn doesn't go away just because I managed to have no problems with it for a while. It's, it's there. It's there all the time, and I need to manage it all the time. And obviously, major depression is a lot different than having fair skin. But the point is that because you're feeling better, because you've managed it, doesn't mean that it's okay to withdraw the thing that may be helping you feel better and healthier. You need to do that under the supervision of your doctor. You know, I, I know that I have a chemical imbalance. And I think people don't realize when they get off their meds cold turkey, there is a weaning down point that you have to adjust to. You can't just get off your medicines. And that's going to bring the symptoms back probably sometimes even worse. And at, at one time, I was on seven different anxiety meds for my anxiety, my panic attacks, and depression. I'm down to two because I have a checklist now. I know that I'm going to have them every now and then. But if my brain has been so trained to go through my checklist to make sure it's not a low blood sugar, to make sure it's not a high blood sugar, to make sure it's not my heart, and I go down that, and by the time I'm done going down that, the panic or the anxiety is done. And the same thing I do with my depression. Okay, what am I feeling? What did I do last night? Well, I taped shows that I would normally watch. All right, that's a sign. I've been oversleeping. And then I make, you know, I, I write down in the journal, I make my cost corrections. But but as far as getting off the meds, people don't realize if you get them off cold turkey, the side effects could make you feel even worse 
than what you came in for. If I'm not yeah, sure if you agree with you that. Can, yeah. No, you can. You can. You have a double whammy. You may have withdrawal effects that are going to feel a lot like depression, and then in some cases the depression could come back. And even if you choose to taper them and get off them, you still want to do that in consultation because, you know, my my thought is good for you. You went from seven meds to two, and you probably feel just as good, if not better, on two meds. But that doesn't mean you can go from two to zero without that doctor's consent, because it may be that those two meds or one of those two meds is the difference between being able to function and becoming suicidal. Well, and it's funny that you bring that up because there was one time when I thought I was completely broken and that there was I was never going to get over this. And, and I know that this is going to be, I'm going to have this till the day I die, but I can still live a productive life. But there was one time when I said, you know what, to hell with all this, I'm just going to get off my meds. And I, and I went off all my meds. And that's when I first attempted my suicide. And a funny story, I had was off all my meds and I started taking my pills and I had a panic attack because I was afraid I was going to die. <laughs> and I was oh, just like, right. of course, you idiot, you're going to die. You're taking pills. So I put my pills back and I will ne- you know, I'll never do it again because I know it was a dumb thing to do. Mm-hmm. I called my therapist, left messages for them at four in the morning, told them what I had just done and... They were concerned. Now, were you able to reach out to any family or friends in the interim? Because I think when you're in that situation, if your therapist isn't available, you want to reach out to somebody. Yeah, I had, I, had, I had called my mom Good. and woke her up. She Perfect. lives down the Cape, but told her what I had done, but I was laughing. So she was scared, but I think she had a sense that she knew that. And, and all my friends, you know, I shared it with my friends and told them, you know, nothing is that bad where you need to do that. And... Um, I can laugh about it because it was actually really funny to me when, and it saved my life because, I mean, here I am having a panic attack, afraid to die, and I'm just like, so I also called 911. I went to the hospital. I had taken less than some people take for a normal dose. Right. So they said, you're going to be a little sleepy. And the following day, I went to both Butler and to my psychologist, and they just want to make sure I had a plan in place, which I did. They were very happy with everything that had gone on, and I would I would never do that again. Um, you think about it, but no, it's just, it's just not the, it's just not for me. Well, you are, and you may underestimate the effect. People will say, doc, I don't think these meds are doing anything for me. I still feel lousy. And obviously that's not my goal. My goal is for people to feel good. But, but what they'll say is, but then I stopped my meds and I realized, oh my God, now I remember what lousy is. Yeah. So you'll kind of have this, this memory that, gee, even though your thought is the meds aren't doing anything in comparison to what life is like without them, they really are helping. That's important to keep in mind. So Derek, you brought up a, uh, a good point when you were talking about chemical imbalance. I think we hear a lot about chemical imbalances in our, and, and I think I would like to know more, Dr. Halsman, about the science behind depression. Well, we use the phrase chemical imbalance to, to help kind of get rid of the mystery of mental illness and to also understand that there is some type of biological, some type of chemical foundation for it. Our current belief system, and, and it's, it's a model that's worked in terms of figuring out how to get people well, is that there are certain neurochemicals in the brain, neurotransmitters, uh, namely serotonin and norepinephrine, that are associated with people feeling relaxed and energized, uh, calm, and even free of depression. And that uh, the theory is that some people, uh, for one reason or another, aren't generating enough of these feel-good chemicals, or they are, uh, for some reason, they don't have the proper receptors in their brain to make use of them. So 
one way of increasing feel-good chemicals is to do things that feel good. So people that um, exercise regularly. There's one study that showed that people with regular exercise responded just as well as uh, people that take an antidepressant, Zoloft, uh, to their depression. So exercising regularly, eating proper foods, having a regular regimented life, doing meaningful things like volunteering, um, or even doing exciting and engaging things like uh, going uh, skiing or skydiving. You know, those things can energize somebody, make them feel positive, and they actually can change brain chemicals. We can, we've learned ways using therapies to alter people's brain chemicals uh, during a depression. But likewise, these medications can also change brain chemicals. And sometimes people want that shortcut. They're like, well, I don't really want to diet. I don't, I don't want to eat well. Uh, I want to be, you know, 200 pounds overweight, and I want to sit around and watch TV all day. Just give me a medicine that's going to make me feel better. Uh, in my experience, the medicines don't work as well if you're not taking care of yourself at the same time. So the brain chemicals respond to meds, but they also respond to behaviors and actions of the individual. Well, yeah, because the serotonin and the, and the endorphins will start to kick in, and they'll make you feel even better. You know, when, I, when I'm feeling down, like I walked in the park this morning, and I knew I had to be up today, and I decided to just take a walk to make myself feel better and to motivate myself to get here today. I was outside. I felt a lot better than being locked up in my apartment. You, you got to get out there. I mean, it's, And some people will say, well, you know, my depression is so bad that it prevents me from getting out there. And I think that's sometimes the real, the real double whammy. It's like, I know I should be doing these things, but my depression feels so bad. And then I would say basically, well, at that point, you don't ask yourself how you feel. Don't do a little self-analysis and say, do I feel like walking today? It's simply a matter of saying, I have to walk. You know, Sundays come and uh, I have to take out the garbage because the garbage man comes on Monday. I don't ask myself on Sunday nights, do I really feel like taking out the garbage tonight? Well, I, I have to do it because if I don't, I'm stuck with garbage for another week. Right. So you don't want to necessarily, if you're trying to get in some regimen of behavioral therapy, you don't want to overthink it. You just have to say, I'm going to go for my walk in the park like I do every morning. And that's actually one of the reasons why people with pets can sometimes have fewer depressive symptoms than people without pets because they have to get up in the morning and take their dog for a walk. Well, not everybody, but, you know, many of them. And so, and they have somebody to take care of. They have to feed their dog, whether they're depressed or not. And so those things keep you kind of moving forward. Well, I know tomorrow for, for my therapy session, you know, my, my therapist is, is very tough on me, you know, especially now at this point in my life where I've been dealing with this for so long. He, you know, he'll tell me, I know tomorrow he might tell me, you know what, you got to be more proactive. You know, you're, you're being too easy on yourself. What did you do this week? People don't realize therapy isn't all fun and games. Sometimes I come out of my therapy session feeling worse because I know that I just got not yelled at, but I was sternly talked to. It's, it, you know, it's just like, geez, I didn't realize, yeah, I was too, being too easy on myself. I wasn't, it wasn't my depression. I was just being lazy. Sure. sure. And those run hand in hand. And you don't have to have depression to be lazy. You just have to be a human being. I oh, mean, yeah. the reality is all of us, you know, January 1st rolls around, we're all going to go to the gym every day for the rest of our lives. And every one of us does go on January 1st and January 2nd and January 3rd, and then not so much January 4th and January 5th, I'm feeling a little bit of a flu. And then by the time you know it, February rolls around and you don't go back again. That's human. That's not necessarily depression. Yeah, so, and you're still paying for it. <laughs> oh, you got you, it. You don't, you don't even cancel it. You're exactly. just still paying for it. <laughs> so you guys talk a lot about healthy lifestyle. Uh, regular therapy appointments and uh, 
different types of treatment, outpatient treatment. We talked about medication. What's interesting is the one thing that I can definitely see they all have in common in order to be successful is having a regimen and consistency, whether it be the medications that you're taking or the lifestyle, like you said, using the example of, you know, the want, the desire to exercise and over the need to exercise, for instance. You need to make a commitment to something and being regular and having it scheduled helps. Man, you know, we live in an era with cell phones and smartphones where basically you can have an alarm for everything. And I tell people, use it. You know, if you, if you have a regular time to go to bed, have a regular time you wake up, and schedule good health-inducing things, and, and, and coming to work is an important one. I mean, I know some people can't work, but some people are afraid to work because of their depression. And, and my experience is that being in the community of people, interacting, feeling like you're doing something good for the community, and if you can't work, volunteer. And don't say, well, I'm volunteering, so it doesn't matter if I go to the soup kitchen today. No, you're committed to go to the soup kitchen three times a week. Be there. And even though it's difficult to get there, almost invariably you feel better by the end of the day because you've done something positive for other people and for yourself. I know that keeping a regular schedule for myself always helps. One of the things that I run into, and I'd like your take on this, um, especially when I had my panic and my anxiety, I always had to keep my mind going so I wouldn't think about panic or anxiety. But you can't keep that 24-7. And then you regiment yourself, you know, five days a week, like, you know, a normal work week. And then you have Saturdays and Sundays off. And you're like, I need to be doing something. I need to be doing something. Um, I found that, you know, just kicking back on a Sunday watching football, I earned that that day off. I know some people that I know have, have a tough time. They think they got to be going seven days a week, and that's a burnout. What would your suggestions be for somebody who keeps a, a regimen? But then, like, I used to panic when there was nothing wrong. I'm well, like, I, I lived in the chaos, and I was just like, oh, my God, there's nothing wrong. Now I'm panicking. Something should be wrong. So there, there's a, a couple things there. One is when everyone, anyone has kind of dead space, particularly if you're prone to anxiety or panic, that is going to stir, stir up a lot of anxiety. Like, what do I do now? I don't have anything to fill my time. And I think what you've done is you've realized, oh, wait a minute, sometimes doing nothing or, you know, doing just relaxing or reading a book or, or taking a bath, sometimes that is doing something. Um, but uh, there are, you know, it also depends on your personality type. For some people, it is relaxing for them to be doing something seven, seven days a week. They just really feel good if they're engaged and they're active and they're doing something. I like to joke with my wife because I occasionally do Sudoku. And uh, I feel guilty about it because it's just sitting there for an hour doing nothing because it's just putting numbers together and I'm not doing anything. So I, in my own mind, I've converted it and I tell my wife, I'm saving the world. So right now, when I, if I get this puzzle right, the world will be saved. It feels good, like I'm doing <laughs> something important. And I actually know that, that the, the world does not hinge on whether or not I complete that puzzle. But I'm giving it meaning to me, at least in a, in a humorous way. How many numbers? You well, doing boxes of just the one through nine? Yeah, the one through nine. Like, yeah. I'm not doing those ones that go in five different directions. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I'm just going to do the one, one through nine, and, and get it over with. <laughs> So we talked about some uh, treatments for depression, both from a medical perspective, psychiatric medications, um, and different types of counseling and coping skills. I think that's a word that I know since um, starting at 
at Arbor Fuller, I have learned a lot more about the power of coping skills. Would you like to speak a bit about coping skills? And well, we've been talking about that. I mean, you, you, whether we talked about taking a bath, we talked about taking a walk, we talked about watching a football game, we talked about doing Sudoku, we talked about reaching out to family. All of those are coping skills. The thing is, you may not realize it until you give it a name. And then you say, okay, these are all things that I can do to help when I'm feeling overwhelmed or to help structure my day. Now, by giving it a name, putting it down on a list, um, you know, as Derek was saying, now he knows he can kind of go through his checkbox, whether it's to get support, whether it's a coping skill, or whether it's just to check his, his heart rate and his blood sugar. If you kind of know what you can use to compensate for that feeling of anxiety or depression, then you use those uh, as a way of bringing yourself down. And we didn't talk much about meditation or relaxation or yoga. And those are also things, obviously, that people use to reduce their level of arousal, to reduce their level of excitation, you know, emotional excitation, so that they can feel calmer and in more control of their lives. So it sounds like it's a combination of both, as you noted, bring yourself down. So treating yourself when you do find yourself in need of to get back on track or you find yourself your, your symptoms escalating, but it's also preventative. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I would have my panic attacks, I mean, it was the end of the world because my dad passed away of a heart attack at 48. I was only 20, so um, I had panic attacks early in my life. I remember in, in regression therapy having them when I was six, seven years old. I didn't know what they were, but as you grow older, you realize, oh, it could be a stroke, could be a heart attack. And when my dad died of a heart attack, every panic attack was a heart attack. And I was a frequent flyer at Pawtucket Memorial. They would take me in there every single day. I would call every single day. Um, but now, like I said, you got to check yourself down. And you've got to realize, you know, I couldn't watch ER and House for the, for the longest time. They were my two favorite shows because House would come up with this thing. And I'd be like, yep, 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 911, hi, I'm watching House and I got these symptoms. You know, but, but having the mental checklist. That was not a good coping skill for you to watch No, House. no, no. <laughs> but, but you know what? It taught me to, instead of stay with the show, turn it off. Right. Because I would try to stick with it. And, and my mom would, you know, what, well, why did you keep watching it? Well, because I'm an idiot. Because I like the actor and you know she's it's like, entertaining well, but it's yeah but right. but but entertaining to a point where i i missed the show anyway because i went to the hospital so, so i think that's where the individualism in, in understanding your personal coping skills some people meditate and do yoga and are fine with it some people don't prefer those methods they would prefer you know like a, a show or or reading a book or um using some types of cognitive behavioral therapy um now we talked a lot about positive coping skills what are some unsuccessful or more negative coping skills um, that we see out there? Well, the, the one that comes to mind is the one we talked about earliest in the program, uh, which is using drugs or alcohol as a way of coping. Uh, any addictive behavior, gambling, you know, going out and, you know, indiscriminately meeting people in bars, uh, having sex, it will feel good temporarily. Uh, but it's not really, unfortunately, there's usually human beings attached to that. Uh, particular behavior and act, and often people get hurt, and or you get hurt. So those I don't think are really great uh, coping skills, and ones I would ask people to stay away from. Other, otherwise, people will say, "Well, it really helps if I just go in my room, close the door, lay in bed, day in and day out." Yeah, sometimes you got to take a break from reality, but when you're doing it for more than more than a day, uh, you really have to be careful and ask yourself, "Is this really helping?" And the other thing I would mention, we talk drugs and alcohol, but there seems to be this increasing belief in our society that marijuana doesn't count uh, as, a, as a drug. 
Um, I, I, and that's maybe, uh, maybe we can come back and have a whole other show about that because uh, legal or not, it is very, very uh, disruptive to people's lives. It really doesn't provide any type of realistic, positive coping. It's really uh, often uh, just an escape. So before we wrap up, I think uh, the next and final question I have for you is when should someone seek help? Well, it's never, I mean, if you're not sure whether you should seek help, go ahead and ask. Uh, Unless you're watching House and everything in the world makes you think that you need help, Uh, in which case you should still ask for help. Uh, You know, um, if your friends and your family are coming up to you saying, I'm worried, uh, the first time they may say it, you may just say, well, stop worrying. But if you're hearing it from several different people, uh, someone you love or trust, you know, if my wife says, "Ah, Scott, I think you're being uh, sulky lately, you know, then I'll reach out to my friend. Is my is my wife right or, you know, am I right? Uh, my friend will usually say, Scott, your wife is always right, you know, and, and this is the, his strategy for me staying married and happily. So if, you're, if families and friends are saying, I think there's a problem, you should listen to that. If you are used to a certain kind of way of viewing the world and it's changed significantly, everything feels like it's grayer, uh, you can't enjoy things the way you used to. Uh, it may be signs of depression, and you may have a reason. You may say, "Yeah, but you know, I, I've you know I've lost a loved one, or I had a recent uh, job change." And sometimes those can be normal reactions. But if those normal reactions go on day in and day out and start to affect your daily ability to function, it's time to ask for help. And I, I just wanted to add to that. I think also on 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 that note that friends and people around, if, if they think something's wrong, and don't be afraid to, to pwn intervention or do something to help these people. Because we had to do that with my mom. She was an alcoholic. And she was, no, you have the problem. You have No, you have the problem, Ma. And then finally, we got family and friends together and got her on the straight now. And I think that can go with mental illness also. If you're pushing somebody away, you know, you might want to try to help them out. It's better to be safe than sorry. So what I guess what you're saying is on the other side of it, uh, can you do anything to help your friends who appear to be suffering from psychiatric illness? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, whether it's a one-on-one talk or to get other friends and families together, um, even to call, you know, if, if I'm a spouse and I'm worried about my spouse, uh, I may call the primary care doctor and I may say, look, um, my wife's coming in for a visit uh, next week. I'm worried about these things. You know, the doctor is, you know, I say make your own decision as a doctor, but I just thought it's important for you to know this and, and hope and trust that the doctor will take that uh, under, into consideration. When does it become an emergency? Well, it, it becomes an emergency when someone stops taking care of themselves. They're no longer able to uh, nourish themselves properly. They start losing weight. Um, they stop eating. They stop going to work. One of the biggest emergencies, if it's a young mother with a, a baby because uh, of maybe getting postpartum depression and not only is the mother at risk, but the baby itself is at risk. And of course, uh, if somebody starts to get to the point where they feel like life's not worth living and feel totally hopeless, uh, the next step is often uh, beginning to think of ways of taking your own life, uh, at which point you should definitely get help because there is help for you. And we will definitely have an opportunity to talk more about the resources in a moment. On a lighter note, I did share with, uh, with Derek your harmonica talents. Yeah, well, you shared the harmonica talent. I'll see if I have a harmonica here in my pocket today. Let's see. But I don't think I've really got much, very, very much to show you here. Let's see. That's the key of E. 
That was great. Thank you so much, Dr. Haltman. You're welcome. So thank you again for joining us today. And again, we were meeting with Dr. Scott Haltzman, the medical director at Arbor Fuller Hospital in Attleboro, Massachusetts. As we uh, wrap up, our biggest thing here on our podcast is to let people know um, that they're never alone, that there is always help out there. And Carrie, um, why don't you tell the folks at home some of the resources that are available to them? There is a plethora of resources out there, folks, um, whether you are in the Attleboro area in Massachusetts or across the country. There is a significant amount of awareness um, that is around mental health issues and addiction. So I can say that, you know, in our local area, we have all types of care. We have inpatient level of care. Um, we have outpatient counseling. We have emergency services. And we have addiction treatment centers. One of the ways that we felt the community would benefit from gaining additional resources or access to resources was through developing what's uh, called a, a drop-in center. It's called the You Are Not Alone Drop-In Center. This is a collaboration between Arbor Fuller and the Attleboro Police Department um, to bring together those resources I was talking about into one, one room, one location, the drop-in center model, it happens once a month, the last Wednesday of every month from 5.30 to 8 p.m. at the Murray Unitarian Universalist Church. That's 505 North Main Street for folks that don't know. And what we do is we open up our doors to the community and say, hey, we understand that there is mental illness and addiction and substance use and abuse is, is chronic and more frequent and more um, well-known than people realize or do realize and maybe don't share or are afraid to share or there's stigma around admitting that you know my, my child may have an opioid issue or my uh, my wife may have bipolar or have depression for instance so what we're doing with the drop-in center model which is something that recently came about in Massachusetts uh, is to offer a consistent resource where if people can come we absolutely emphasize the importance of anonymity. You can come to our drop-in center. You do not even have to give your name. You can come for yourself for voluntary treatment options. You can come on behalf of a loved one. We have uh, trained volunteers and guides to help, um, you know, guide you through the resources we'll have there. And I think the best part is the fact that we actually have these fantastic resources around us in the room with representatives who can answer questions, connect them, connect them to services, uh, whatever the case is. And there's there's follow-up as well. Um, and just to name a few types of resources, we have South Bay Community Services, Arbor Fuller Hospital, NORCAP Lodge, High Point Treatment Centers, and Seven Hills, to name a few. And in fact, uh, we also offer Narcan training, which I highly recommend for anybody who um, resides with somebody who has an opioid addiction. Um, you are more likely than say, a medical doctor or a medical person to encounter a loved one firsthand who has an overdose. The training is free. The Narcan is free. Um, and we're more than happy to, to help. For additional questions regarding services and uh, around mental health or substance use or abuse, uh, we have various uh, contact information that we can offer you. For questions regarding our podcast today, you can contact us at mentalillness at wararadio.com. 
uh, for questions directly for uh, inpatient level of care or outpatient services, I am available. Uh, Carrie Ballou, Community Relations Coordinator. You can reach me at 508-761-8500, extension 2354. For information regarding the You Are Not Alone Drop-In Center, you can contact myself directly, again, at the number that was just mentioned, or you can go on our Facebook page, at Attleboro Recovery, and message us and reach out. Just to, to wrap this up, if you're not in the Massachusetts area and you think you have a problem, just dial 911. Get the ambulance out there. Tell them how you're feeling, and they're there to help, and they're going to find you a mental health care facility. Um, for those people, hopefully, we're getting more listeners than just in Massachusetts, but, you know, around the country, hopefully. Dialing 911, don't be embarrassed about it. I mean, they're there to help, and they're going to just explain your problems, and they're going to get you to the right facility. And I, I, I think that's one of the most in, important things. And like I said, you know, um, we're here to help uh, to let you know that, that you're not alone. So um, we want to thank Dr. Scott Haltzman uh, for coming in. For Carrie Ballou, uh, I'm Derek Molhan, and um, this has been Exploring Mental Illness. Everything you wanted to know but were afraid to ask. And until next time, be well. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast, its associated website, and any links material are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast or its associated website. If the listener or any other person has a medical concern, they should consult an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The views expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of Atterboro Access Cable Systems, Arbor Fuller Hospital, or their parents' corporations. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast and its associated website are copyrighted Attleboro Access Cable Systems. The podcast may be redistributed in accordance with Creative Commons License 4.0.